nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, the online echo chamber has been working overtime with dire warnings about new high radiation readings at Fukushima. But is that the case, or is that a distortion? We talk with Nancy Faust of Simply Info about what those readings really mean, where they came from, and how information has been distorted even by otherwise reliable media sources. Step away from the apocalypse, because that's not what's happening. Plus, we will have numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear reactor duck and cover report based on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's weekly reports on what's gone wrong with those aging dangerous rust buckets and more honest nuclear information than Lady Gaga was able to get into the Super Bowl halftime show. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 7, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Catching up on the news for the past two weeks, demolition of Hanford's plutonium finishing plant was halted on Monday, January 30th, after a spread of radioactive contamination outside of the plant on January 27. Hmm. Took them three days to figure out that they should shut it down after the contamination happened. A radiation monitor alert sounded on Friday at 4.45 p.m. near part of the plant where demolition had been underway earlier but had been stopped for the day. A work crew was outside applying fixative to contain any radiation contamination on a waste pile. Workers at the plant took cover as a precaution as the alarm was confirmed as valid about 10 minutes after it sounded. Again, a little bit of a time lag there. Contamination was found beyond the outdoor zone where it was planned to be contained during the open-air contamination. But as far as we know so far, it did not spread beyond the boundary surrounding the plant. Yet, radiological surveys found low levels of radioactive contamination on workers' protective clothing, but no contamination on the street clothing they wore underneath or their skin. Nasal smears also found no evidence of inhaled contamination. May it be so. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo's recent announcement about closing the deteriorating Indian Point nuclear power plant facility within the next few years seems like good news at first blush, but if you look closely at the details, it's clear that there are many unanswered questions. Although the nuclear reactors will reportedly close in 2020 and 2021, the agreement allows for an extension of the plant's closure until 2025. 
There are numerous unresolved problems. Most glaring is the imminent and permanent danger posed by the co-location of Spectra's 24-inch diameter high-pressure Algonquin incremental market gas pipeline. The first segment of their massive Algonquin pipeline expansion constructed a mere 105 feet away from critical safety infrastructure at Indian Point. That's right, a gas pipeline right snuggled up next to Indian Point. The blast radius of a rupture in this pipeline exceeds 4,000 feet and could engulf the entire Indian Point site. Pipeline, nuclear, and disaster preparedness experts have urgently warned that a pipeline rupture at the nuclear plant could result in core meltdowns, major radioactive releases, and a nuclear disaster worse than that at Fukushima, threatening 20 million people who live within the 50-mile impact radius encompassing New York City and significant portions of the tri-state area. It would render the region uninhabitable for generations, with potential economic losses in trillions of dollars, if you could even figure that money would count after that. Forty-five years of highly radioactive spent fuel is permanently stored at Indian Point. So a pipeline rupture at this site, even if the nuclear plant is closed, poses disastrous risks to millions of New Yorkers. I just thought you should know. Up the coast to Plymouth, Massachusetts, where federal regulators said on Tuesday, January 31st, that the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station can continue to operate, but will remain under intense federal scrutiny after a government inspection found at least 10 safety issues with its procedures. This is hogwash. Because last December, the unintentional release of an internal NRC memo described the Pilgrim staff as overwhelmed as they worked to improve performance at the facility, which is set to close in 2019. Pilgrim is ranked by the NRC as one of the three worst run in terms of safety nuclear facilities in the country. Daniel Dorfman the regional administrator of the NRC, told about 200 people gathered for a public meeting on Tuesday, January 31st, that Pilgrim has received permission to refuel this year. Chance of shame, shame, shame. Followed from residents who are skeptical about the safety of the state's only nuclear power facility. Citizens of Cape Cod were furious, one saying, we have to shelter in place if something goes wrong, it's not safe. Another saying, we came, we complained, you listened, you obfuscated. U.S. Senator Edward Markey said of the internal memo, Now, only a month and a half after this report was filed, the NRC and Entergy are telling us that the conclusions in this email were merely preliminary and that the situation at Pilgrim is not as bad as initially reported. There is little consolation in this too-good-to-be-true reassurance. For those of you who wish to understand exactly how ridiculous this ruling is, I suggest you listen to Nuclear Hot Seat number 286 from December 13, where we go into the accidentally released email in depth. Now let's catch up with the nuclear reactor duck <laughs> and cover report, wherein we learn what the NRC has been told about what went wrong with those reactors in the past three weeks. At Quad Cities in Illinois on February 1st, there was an alert 
which is two steps up on the four-step scale of the NRC to kiss your ass goodbye. This was caused by a fire in safety-related system. The fire was discovered in the Unit 2 main control room panel in a valve switch. The initiation of the event was attempting to change a light bulb. So how many nuclear engineers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Answer? Better not try any of them because obviously they can't get it right. (coughs) Two for the price of one at LaSalle in Illinois. On January 18, both secondary containment airlock doors opened simultaneously, which is an event or condition that could have prevented fulfillment of a safety function needed to control the release of radioactive material and also prevented fulfillment of a safety function needed to mitigate the consequences of an accident. More door problems at Millstone in Connecticut on January 20th, when there was failure of a secondary containment door to close. As a result, the shift manager declared the secondary containment inoperable. This condition could have prevented the fulfillment of the safety function to control the release of radioactive material and mitigate the consequences of an accident. At Fitzpatrick in New York, which is one of the nuclear reactors being given Governor Cuomo's renewable energy funds to stay open. But why bother? On January 22nd, a weld defect was found during a shutdown inspection. The event is being reported as a degraded condition based on the fact that the indications result in a defect in the primary coolant system which cannot be found acceptable. Bad English, worse implications. In Florida, on January 31st, St. Lucie got some splaining to do. There was a reactor coolant pressure boundary piping defect in a through wall, which is part of the reactor coolant pressure boundary. And finally, not only prime duck and cover territory, but also... Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's week. The NRC event reports handle not only problems at nuclear reactors, but any radioactive material anywhere in the country where there's a problem that happens. I don't usually focus on those, but this one is too good to pass up. This was reported by the Utah Division of Radiation Control for the Licensee Energy Fuels Resources, Inc., and it took place on January 12. A van carrying three barrels of solid and wet radioactive materials was received at the White Mesa Mill. When the employees were unloading the van, they realized that a barrel, maybe two, maybe three, had rusted bottoms and were leaking. Although the bottom of the barrels were not rusted through, they were characterized as, quote-unquote, being soft. The barrels were on plastic sheeting that should have restricted the leaking materials to the plastic. However, when the barrels were unloaded, the employees noted that there was a hole in the sheeting. When the radiation safety officer was informed of the incident and arrived at the van... He noted that there was visible leakage on the girders and the siding of the van. Unfortunately, 
he was unable to take measurements of the area where the leak occurred to determine the radiation levels. No, not because he didn't have a radiation monitor on him, but because the van had been pulled in and cleaned up prior to his ability to take any measurements. So the only measurements were taken after the van was cleaned. No word about where the washing up took place or what happened to the groundwater that probably was contaminated with these materials. Now, in really a juicy case of semantic posterior covering, the Utah Division of Waste Management and Radiation Control stated that it appeared that only a small quantity of liquid material was leaking from the barrels. Because the contents of the barrels are primarily solid and only contain small amounts of liquid, and the liquid contents of the barrels were leaking through the bottom of the barrel, through a plastic sheet, across the van floor, and out of the van along a girder and the siding, and the dog ate their homework, it's likely that only small quantities of materials were leaking from the van. In addition... Because of the rain and snow that had been occurring while the vehicle was traveling to the mill site, it is likely that any small amounts of materials that leaked from the van were subsequently washed away and, here's the key word, diluted. No, they weren't diluted. They were dispersed. They were distributed. When you dilute something, it gets weaker and weaker to the point where it probably won't hurt you. That doesn't happen with nuclear. What happens is every atom holds the exact same threat as it tosses off radionuclides that can penetrate the body. And with the rain and with the snow and with the washing up, there's no telling where or how far these materials have been dispersed. So what kind of materials are we talking about? At the last verification, the Honeywell material contained... 61% uranium, lead-210, radium-226, thorium-230, and thorium-232. It's a grand slam. So who do you blame? Utah Division of Radiation Control? Energy Fuels Resources Incorporated? The Nuclear Regulatory Commission? Honeywell? Whoever it is, at minimum, We need a map of the route that that van took so people can go out and test for themselves if they've been polluted and their waterways have been polluted and their snow has been polluted with this radioactive material that leaked out. And besides that, all you guys I just mentioned, you're all this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And keeping in mind that little transport incident, A judge has given the U.S. Department of Energy the green light to begin transporting highly radioactive liquid waste from Ontario, Canada to South Carolina. But opponents of the shipment say the fight is not yet over. U.S. District Court Judge Tanya S. Chutkin cited precedents that she said obligated her to, quote, defer to the wisdom of the agency. That's the Department of Energy provided its decision is reasoned and rational. That's debatable. She accepted the DOE's contention that since it had earlier assessed the hazards of shipping waste in powdered form, there was no need for a new assessment of liquid waste. Let's go back to that thought about reasoned and rational. 
I don't think that applies here because as any home baker can tell you, there is a difference between powdered and liquid. Public opposition remains to an unprecedented plan to ship 23,000 liters, which means 6,000 gallons, of intensely radioactive liquid from Chalk River, Ontario, to the Savannah River site in South Carolina, a distance of over 2,000 kilometers or over 1,200 miles. The liquid is in an acid solution of dozens of extremely radiotoxic materials, such as cesium-137, strontium-90, and plutonium-239. Mm-mm-mm. The lawsuit was brought by seven U.S. organizations, Beyond Nuclear, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, Savannah Riverside Watch, Citizens for Alternatives to Chemical Contamination, Lone Tree Council, Sierra Club, and Environmentalists, Inc., with dozens of organizations in the U.S. and Canada supporting the plaintiffs in their opposition. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has killed a National Academy of Science study on cancer around U.S. nuclear power stations. Federal regulators killed a rigorous examination of cancer in millions of Americas living near nuclear power plants because they were convinced the study could not link reactors to disease and would be too costly. In other words, they thought they already had the answer, and if they did have the answer... They didn't want us to know what it was. Doubts over the study's usefulness ran deep at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but even some study skeptics pushed to save it nonetheless, arguing that modern science could help address public concerns over possible health risks related to the plants. But they could not convince their bosses, who concluded that the $8 million price tag for the pilot study, which would have examined San Onofre and six other sites, couldn't be justified. Meanwhile, several recent European studies found disturbing links between childhood cancers and kids living close to nuclear plants. We'll link to this full story. Over to Japan, where on January 18, a new report out of TEPCO and the various parties involved in decommissioning documents that 15 workers from Fukushima Daiichi have developed cancer. Eight workers have leukemia. Five workers have developed malignant lymphoma, and two workers have multiple myeloma. These counts do not include any of the other response workers, such as SDF or Tokyo Fire Department workers, who also responded to the disaster at the facility. And on February 2nd, a Japanese court began hearing the case of a man who developed leukemia after working as a welder at the damaged Fukushima nuclear site. The plaintiff, 42 years old, is the first person to be recognized by labor authorities as having an illness linked to the cleanup at the plant. He's suing Tokyo Electric Power Company. Now here's the international report with Sean McGee reporting from Ireland. For our first report dated February the 6th, I'm going to a Wall Street Journal article and the headline for this is Inspector Finds Safety Flaws Remain at Concern at French Nuclear Supplier. Now, the letter says Arriva hasn't analysed why a cover-up went undetected and can't guarantee it won't happen again. Now, the first paragraph from this I'll just read. It's uh, from Paris, and it's uh, February the 6th, 2017. A team of international inspectors described extensive management weakness at a key supplier for the global nuclear power industry. 
finding that safety failings are still a worry months after investigators revealed a decades-long cover-up of manufacturing problems at a French factory owned by the supplier. In a letter sent to the supplier, Arriva, SA, last month, the inspector noted that the French company had neither analysed why the cover-up had gone undetected for years, nor could guarantee that a similar incident couldn't happen again. Now, this story follows on from a, another story from February the 2nd, where the Chinese National Nuclear Corporation uh, decided against taking stake in the capital increase and in restructuring of the French nuclear group Arriva. So there uh, seems to be a lot of problems going on here, and of course this is all, all attached to the Toshiba issue. We have been covering the Toshiba story for some weeks now, and on the February the 7th, a new twist has occurred. Uh, Toshiba has sold all its Japan display shares after a profit scandal. Most of the shares of that company are owned by a, a government-connected company, and they've uh, basically sold that for nearly $35 million. Um, so we'll be keeping an eye on the Toshiba story as it develops. Um, obviously, it's very bad news for the nuclear industry. Moving to South Africa now, we see that President Zuma has been asked to dismantle his nuke plans for South Africa. Now, the Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town and elder statesman, who is called Njongkukulu Nyungani, he basically made a, the statement ahead of a delivery of the address in, in Parliament this week. He said, We are very quickly and surely sliding towards a future of nuclear energy, I call on all citizens to become fully informed about the insidious process that is unfolding under our noses and raise their voices in protest against the government nuclear energy plan, the Archbishop said. The price tag is estimated at some 1 trillion R. Our current debt, he said, stands at nearly 2 trillion. And so he wants to borrow the money to pay for the nuclear. So the country will owe 3 trillion. Uh, which is an increase of more than 50%. Anyone with the most basic ability to balance a budget can see that the increasing uh, one's debt by more than half is financial suicide, the Archbishop said. He then goes on to say that the government has been trying to block renewable energy. So there's a big issue there. And, of course, we're aware that Russia is basically putting some money towards the government. And uh, we obviously are aware that President Zuma is not the most transparent and honest person, shall we say. And he's certainly got some form in terms of corruption and what have you. Obviously, there is a flashback between the church and the social societies pushing back, and they want a more affordable energy policy. Now, as we were discussing renewable energy, we were talking about Poland last week, and we were saying that they were really trying not to get any renewables, and they've been putting many barriers up to stop renewables being allowed in the country. And this is because of the coal lobby, the fossil fuel lobby there. Now, this week we've got a report, which is from Euractiv.com. The smoke-choking, coal-addicted Poland, it says. And uh, Professor Anna Dobazinska, she's a respected specialist with more than two decades of experience treating lung disease. And she doesn't mince her words when talking about health risk that this poses. So she was saying that the estimated 50,000 premature deaths per year in the country of 38 million people, and certainly it's a large part of that is to the burning of coal. And when they were talking about the actual levels 
of allowable pollution. In the EU limit, it is said, uh, for exposure to fine pollutants, known as PM10 particles, is 50 micrograms per cubic metre per day. Now, obviously, what's happened is that in Poland, their alert level is 300 micrograms per day. And, in fact, their air pollution is exceeding the EU-wide norm by a huge 600%, according to Pieter Sergiek, an activist with anti-smog NGO Alarm. And this is Sean McGee, reporting from Ireland for Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Sean. In one final international story this week, in Taiwan last December, two defects in metal parts were found at the Ma'anshan nuclear plant in Pingtung County, Taiwan. A control rod driver had become crooked, and such a deformation could lead to the misplacement of a control rod when it is inserted into the central core of the reactor. Also, a screw bolt on the steam generator fractured as it was being removed. Necessary parts were replaced in both instances, and on January 12, Taiwan's Atomic Energy Council gave permission to Taiwan Power Company, or Tai Power, to reactivate the second reactor at Ma'anshan Nuclear Power Plant. However, on January 25th, less than two weeks later, a cooling water pump at the plant's first reactor malfunctioned and forced the reactor into an emergency shutdown. This plunged the country's power supply system into an orange alert, meaning that Taiwan had an energy reserve of less than 6%. As the case against nuclear keeps mounting in Taiwan, it's no surprise that starting on January 18, renewable energy such as solar and wind power have been given priority to go on the grid. The move is the government's attempt to promote renewable energy, aiming to increase the current share of 2% to 20% of the island's total energy generation by 2025. Would that all the world's governments would be that smart. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, hey, I know you. Yeah, you sitting there listening to this program. You are a caring person. And you like being helpful. Clearly, or you wouldn't be listening to Nuclear Hot Seat. So the next time you buy yourself one of those upscale coffee drinks, think about Nuclear Hot Seat. For the price of that cup of coffee, plus a decent tip to the barista, you can provide a donation that supports this show in its weekly quest for verifiable, non-hysteric nuclear news. Think of it as the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee. I'd share it with you in person if I could. And if you'd like to set up a coffee date on behalf of this show every month, make it a recurring donation. $5 a month. Easy enough to do. Just go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, and click on the big red donate button. You can use your debit card, credit card, PayPal account, or if you prefer to donate by check, we can make arrangements for that, too, with an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Be this a one-time boost or the start of a monthly Starbucks-equivalent donation, whatever you can do to help support the work of Nuclear Hot Seat, thank you, thank you, and, by the way, thank you. 
When the information first came out about what appeared to be an enormous radiation release from Fukushima, I grabbed all the info I could find to be able to report on it. Then came a countering article from the highly respected simplyinfo.org with the unambiguous title, No, Fukushima Daiichi did not see a radiation spike. That's when I knew I had to get an interview for this week's show with Nancy Faust, and I did. She is communications manager and research team member for simplyinfo.org, which is a not-for-profit research collective focusing on the Fukushima disaster. Simplyinfo.org holds and manages the largest public archive of data on the Fukushima disaster in the world. The group provides in-depth analysis of past and current events related to the disaster to develop a better understanding of what has taken place and to bring that understanding to the public. I spoke with Nancy Faust about these new higher-than-ever readings on Monday, February 6, 2017. Nancy Faust, it's always great to have you here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. There have been an ever-increasing number of news stories, many of them in legitimate media outfits, regarding the radiation levels at Fukushima Daiichi reaching record highs and representing a sudden, massive increase in the danger coming from that site. Let's cut to the chase right now. Is this so? No, it is not. There is not any new spike in radiation. There has not been any new identification of an increase. What they did find was a high reading, but they're looking in new locations where they expect to find high radiation levels. So what you're seeing is TEPCO and the allied companies that are helping them finding these higher radiation sources that are closer to where they expect to find the melted fuel. So what they found is actually expected. And it's not an increase. It's just getting to the more dangerous parts of the facility. So this is a new area that the reading is taking place in. Yes. What has caused this confusion in the understanding of the information? My understanding from reading the various news sources that initially came out with this, I think it was a translation error between Kyoto News and Japan Times. Sometimes when they're explaining something in technical terms, it can get very muddy when it starts being translated. When someone's trying to make something clear what it is and isn't, and then you're trying to convert it from Japanese to English, sometimes it can become a little muddy and a little vague. And that appears to be what the case was in the English translation of the Kyoto article. They were trying to indicate that this was the highest level that they have recorded. That doesn't mean it's the highest level that's ever happened. And that seems to be the hair splitting and the confusion and where things really went off the rails. We'll get to the technicalities on this, but how do you believe the echo chamber has been echoing so loudly with the more drastic interpretation of this news rather than the correction and the clarity that's being put out by Simply Info. It's really interesting because it started with this, that this reading is the highest ever, and then it just sort of became embellished. And looking through these reiterations of it in the media, no one is 
citing any source for kind of the hysterical interpretation they're taking on it, saying that you know new things have happened at the plant or that this is creating a new risk to people or that something has happened. I also saw some that claimed that containment was failed. There's nothing reported by TEPCO, IRID, or in any of the press conferences or anywhere else that we can find showing anything has changed recently. So there's a lot of things just being kind of interpreted out of thin air and seeing it happen in what are considered kind of regular media sources is really concerning. Have you done an outreach to any of the media sources that have gotten this wrong to give them the corrective information that's now posted on Simply Info? Yes, we did make contact with the editor of Popular Mechanics, which was one of the first sources that was going around with this information. We showed him some firsthand information. He agreed that the way he had written his story was not factual, and he did go back and correct it somewhat to take out the more sensationalized parts that were really giving people panic that that something new had happened. So he did reflect the information a little bit better after we showed him the source information that, yes, this is a new high reading, but no, it's not a new event at the plant. We have been trying to get in touch with the journalist at The Guardian that had written an article that was also widely circulated and have gotten no response at all from them yet. At that point, we kind of gave up trying to contact other sources because it's propagated so widely. You know, there were tens, 20, at least stories that I have seen myself that are reiterations of this information. So that people understand the integrity from which your information is coming, explain to them what Simply Info is, what it does, and what your position has been with the group. Simply Info's purpose has been since the initial disaster to gather as much information as possible. And we want firsthand information. We want raw data. We want official reports. We want visual evidence. So we're looking for that very original source data that we then use to try to develop analysis of what is going on, to try to confirm information, and to have a really in-depth understanding of what is going on with this disaster over time. My position has been in the research team. I do all the communications outreach, but I also work on a daily basis with gathering the data, data management, and working with our research team to try to interpret what this data means. So this is really kind of our hyper-focus and has been since the initial disaster. So sometimes we will see things like the media making an incorrect interpretation of the data, which is totally understandable because a journalist usually is not following things to the depth that we are. So they may miss something or not understand something where we see their error immediately because we've been going through every report put out by TEPCO and all these other entities that are now working on the disaster on a daily basis. So we have a kind of an, a unique in-depth look at this. So we frequently catch things that are understandable and honest mistakes by the media just because they don't have that depth of knowledge. Looking at the information that TEPCO has made available in the last week, what is the true meaning of what has been discovered at this point about the radiation levels and about what might be happening with the melted fuel? 
it's good to point out what this work actually was when they found the reading. It was scheduled work to go in and do further inspections at the plant. As they gain bits of information and do research and develop new technologies, they're going further and further towards finding the melted fuel. So this radiation reading they found, it was inside the containment structure at Unit 2. So it is inside containment. It was not something they found outside in the plant grounds where it's more of a risk to the workers or the public. This routine work found this reading. They found it using a camera. So it's actually not a really reliable reading either. Uh, What they're doing is they're taking the camera that's on this scope they were using and they're estimating the interference they see on this camera and ascribing a radiation level to it. So they found this one spot that had a really high radiation level inside containment with a camera. Now what they need to do, and they're already in the planning stages of this, is to go back in with a robot that's got an actual sensor on it and get a real reading. Because what they honestly do not know at this point, is this reading completely accurate or was it kind of an oddity on this camera? So once they put this robot in, they will be able to tell for sure because that sensor they have on the robot is an actual radiation detector. When you talk about the picture, is that the kind of mosaic picture that has been put together that has slices that show the two-meter hole in a grate in the bottom of the containment unit? The images they used to estimate the radiation were taken during that same set of work. It was not in that area where they found the high radiation, which is actually unexpected. We figured the place they found the highest radiation would be where you see this hole in the worker floor grate would be where you'd find that really high radiation because there's evidence of fuel burning through this grate. But actually, the data TEPCO put out today they document that the high reading is actually further away from that grate, which doesn't make any sense. This starts making this high reading even more questionable. You know, is it an oddity? Is there something up higher in this outer area that's giving off a really high radiation source, or was it just an inaccurate reading with this camera? So once they put this robot in, they should have a better idea. When is this new work expected to take place? They just announced the change of plans this morning. That report did not include a schedule or an estimated date. They had originally planned to do the additional work with the robot within the next 30 days. So my guess is that this change of plans work to put the robot in and try to get some radiation readings will happen within the next 30 days. Based on the information that you have seen, where is it believed that the bulk of the spent fuel actually is? The melted fuel from the reactor, our best guess at this point is that it has fallen down through that pedestal, which is right below the reactor vessel, and in that area where they found the melted hole. And our estimate is that the fuel fell through that grate to the floor of the containment vessel below the pedestal and has burned down into the concrete below. Does that indicate that perhaps it has gone through the concrete into the ground and into the groundwater? We don't have enough information to confirm or dispute that at this point. What we do know is that there is a 
route for water to leak out of the floor of containment. And we don't know what that is. The main way that they assumed that the water would leak out of containment would be to fill up the bottom of the containment vessel, leak out these metal downcomer tubes that go into the torus tube, and then leak out that way. But the water level in Unit 2's containment structure is so shallow it can't reach those downcomer tubes. And they looked in the torus, and there's no hole where it leaks sideways down into the torus room. So whatever route water is leaking out of Unit 2's containment is somewhere in that containment floor. And that brings a lot of big questions that, that maybe the containment floor has cracks or holes in it, has the fuel burned all the way through the containment floor down into the soil, has something else happened that has further degraded that structure beneath it so that water is finding a route directly out. And there's no way to know that definitively at this time? Not at this point, but that's kind of the next step. And these things TEPCO is doing right now is gathering that information to better understand this. They wanted to look into the pedestal and see, you know, where has where is there damage, where is there high radiation, because that's the path you're going to find the melted fuel and where it went. As you're talking about various tubes, I understand and I've seen on the Simply Info site that you have a number of articles up dealing with this situation and also a number of visuals there showing the charts. What is the source of this information and does it clarify what you're talking about with the various tubes? Yes. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. We try to put up diagrams as often as possible to help people kind of try to visualize where something is or what we're talking about. We get most of our diagrams either from TEPCO documents. There's also a series of different research agencies in Japan that are working with dealing with the decommissioning and finding the fuel. And they will periodically release technical documents also. So if we use a diagram, it's based off of a diagram that's established and provided by you know one of these entities that's working on the disaster. So we know it's it's solid information. We also have a full elevation drawing of Unit 1 that we received back in 2011. This document makes it a lot easier to kind of locate things, and we know it's a valid, accurate document. TEPCO has confirmed it's a correct blueprint. So that has been useful over the years for us to identify where different structures are. Do you find that you at Simply Info get the bulk of your information from the official documents that are put out by TEPCO, or is there a whistleblower aspect of this where you're getting information that perhaps TEPCO officials would rather you not have access to? It's been very interesting. The very public-facing information that comes out of all of this is usually not where we find the really good information. Sometimes TEPCO will tell the press something that's useful, and, and we gather that data. But we find a lot of the really useful information is in the less public-facing channels of information. There's an agency called the NDF, and they're tasked with the decommissioning. And then there's IRID, which is a research arm that's dealing with the research and development towards this. So the documents they put out frequently will have very honest information. It's very technical, but it's honest, and it's not 
given a veneer of public relations. So many times we find things that are almost whistleblower-ish in that information. We don't have as much direct worker-type whistleblower information compared to what we did in 2011. But also many of the very familiar workers that had worked at the plant during the height of the disaster no longer work there because their radiation levels were so high they had to retire. So there's less of that type of scuttlebutt type information, but these very technical channels are much more honest and forthcoming with information than TEPCO's public-facing information is. Do you know or do you believe that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission here in the United States or any other of the nuclear agencies around the world are doing the kind of in-depth analysis that Simply Info is doing? In some ways, we will find that there's research going on. In the U.S., as an example, we'll find that there's research papers that have been put out that are very knowledgeable and very in-depth about what has happened with the disaster, and they'll take an aspect and do in-depth research on it. So we know there is some in-depth research going on in the U.S. National Lab System, but it's very limited because of funding priorities and things like that. The angle where the U.S. government finds it worth funding is towards better safety for what they consider future reactor designs. They'll put money into it when they see it in that context. Anything as far as an effort to kind of disassemble the disaster and fully understand it from other aspects doesn't really happen as much. Do you find that the media uses simply info? as a source for their stories? Do you find them turning to you, especially as we're coming up on the sixth anniversary of the start of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster? We're contacted by journalists on a fairly regular basis. They're usually looking for some firsthand technical documentation or some interpretation of something they don't fully understand so that they make sure they're not off base or just need some more in-depth information that they're not sure where to go find it. We wish they would contact us a little bit more than they do, especially when we see things like this happen where a story kind of goes off the rails. So we're there. We encourage journalists to come find information. We're more than happy to provide them with data that they can use. There are many well-meaning activists who got caught up in this inadvertent misinformation echo chamber. And I have to admit that if the timing had been different between when those articles appeared implying or claiming a new radiation incident and the production date of nuclear hot seat, I would have been among them. When future stories come out dealing with radiation releases or spikes at Fukushima Daiichi or anything else of an alarming nature, What do you suggest that responsible activists do before we start spreading what may be bad news or may just be bad information? My suggestion when you're presented with a news story is to look at their source. Who are they quoting or who are they linking back to? And since most news that people are getting is online, even if it's from an established newspaper, uh, they'll either verbally, you know, in their text, they will cite their source. You know, we got this information from TEPCO, or we got it from such and such source, or they'll have a link to the source. Is go read that source and see what the source says. Is the source reliable? 
does it make sense? Does what the source match what the news article says? Because many times I've found that a news article will cite a source and then I go read the source and the source said nothing that the news article said. And that's sometimes is the simplest way to sort out whether that information is reliable or not. Anything else that you would like to share at this time? The only other thing we really wanted to point out with this data that came out is that it's not an increase, but there are a number of places that they've found high levels of radiation over the past five years. And this is just one of them. It is higher than the others, but many of these others are still concerning. And all of these levels are basically different flavors of deadly radiation. They're all bad. So, you know, a reading they found in 2011 that was deadly should be taken kind of in the same context as these others. They're all deadly. They're areas they're not going to let workers go into ever. If people wish to follow Simply Info, perhaps donate to you, where's the best way that they can locate you? Our website is www.simplyinfo.org. Right now, we're not taking donations. We hope to be doing that within the next year. We're working on a process to set up to be ready to do that. Nancy Faust, thank you so much for your work, for your clarity, and for being willing on such short notice to be my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great. Thanks for having me. As so often happens when I finish with an official interview, Nancy and I kept talking with each other, and a couple of gems came out that I have to share with you. First, about the problems so many of us face when it comes to figuring out whether a story is legitimate or not. The way it came out, if you didn't know these deep details, it's totally believable. So you really can't give anybody any criticism for, you know, sharing it because it sounded, if you didn't have that deeper knowledge, because we were going through these documents as the story came out, we're like, oh, no, that's not what it is because we got the documents right in front of us. The way it was presented, it seemed totally reasonable and there was nothing that made it look like a flight of fancy. So it really was just strange for me to see happen. And with this new information, it sounds like TEPCO is probably going to have that robot in in the next 30 days. So I'm guessing there's going to be new information. Once it comes out, I'll I'll shoot you a Facebook message or something and go, hey, we got new data and let you know if it's something that's relevant enough to let people know more about it. Of course, any information we get from Nancy and Simply Info, we will share with you. Finally, here's the last part of our conversation with each other. You were paying attention to all this in 2011, and crazy stories were almost the norm, you know, and you expected it. It's almost six years later, and to see this one show up and two come out of traditional media sources was just, I just couldn't believe it. This is my attempt to help turn down the fire under this one and say, yeah, Fukushima Daiichi is a mess, but it's not that flavor of mess. Right. Yeah, it is. It's a complete hot mess. Mm -hmm. It's just not a new hot mess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, gotta laugh where you can. That was Nancy Faust of Simply Info. And we will have links up to several Simply Info articles on this very topic, along with the diagrams that explain about the internal workings of the Fukushima reactors, up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 294. Activist shout-out, 
And we've got two really great and also easy actions for you to take this week. The first is to join the Hibaksha Appeal for a Nuclear Ban Treaty. 71 years have passed since the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is the call of the survivors, known as Hibaksha, or sometimes pronounced Hibakusha. Though their average age is now more than 80 years old, the Hibaksha have launched a signature campaign calling for an international treaty to ban and eliminate nuclear weapons in the hope that no one will ever have to suffer as they have. They plan to continue to collect signatures until 2020 or until a nuclear ban treaty is concluded, whichever comes first. The initial batch of 564,240 signatures collected in August through September of 2016 was submitted on October 6 to the chair of the United Nations General Assembly's First Committee on Disarmament. New signatures will be submitted annually, in large part as a result of that action. On October 27 of 2016, the U.N. adopted a landmark resolution to launch negotiations in 2017, this year, on a treaty outlawing nuclear weapons, with 123 countries voting in favor. You can add your voice to the 2017 total of signatures by checking out the link on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 294. Join your voice with those of the Hibaksha to say, never again, and sign the petition for a new treaty to ban nuclear weapons. And a second action comes from ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Regular listeners will have heard me talk about some of the online tools that we in the movement need to be using, and I'm delighted that ICANN is using one of them, the Thunderclap. And you can join the Worldwide Thunderclap, which is a tweet coordination campaign, and use it to help ban nuclear weapons. On February 10 at 1 p.m., the tweet, Nuclear weapons are an urgent threat. Now states are starting historic negotiations to ban them in March 2017. Join us. That's the tweet. And you can sign up to automatically have that go out. If you go to, again, there will be a link up on the website under episode 294, a link to the thunderclap. What this does is release the accumulated signers, like a little mini petition. But if you signed on and put your Twitter address on that, it will tweet out simultaneously. What that does is it makes a huge noise on Twitter, and we trend. And what's important about that is that that is how news organizations now figure out what stories they're going to be covering. So join the thunderclap, go to Nuclear Hot Seat, and click on the link to ICANN. You've got until February 10. That's three days from now. You can do it. And let's see how much noise we can make. Here's today's final thought, and it's pretty much where I dwelt while I was pretty sick for the last couple of weeks. When it comes to the nuclear industry, it seems there is no such thing as common sense. There is spin, languaging, PR, misdirection, bullying, manipulation, 
and downright lies. Like the classroom bully who can never admit responsibility or acknowledge information commonly held as true that contradicts their aims, the nuclear bullies can't step away from their profit machines long enough to recognize the long-term harm they are doing to people and the environment. Now, I believe that there are good people working inside the nuclear industry. I have tremendous respect for the engineers who do everything they can to keep these reactor behemoths from blowing up in our faces or leaking their guts. But the politicians and the corporate manipulators do not have the best interests of the next seven generations in mind or at heart. I don't know what it will take to wake them up to the consequences of their actions, other than another massive nuclear accident, and I don't wish that on anyone. But if there's a fault line in the diamond-hard dogma that propels the nuclear industry forward, I wish someone would find it and let us know how to crack it before it's too late. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 7, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from stltoday.com, tri-cityherald.com, lowhud.com, bostonglobe.com, sierraclub.org, sbsun.com, international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, at change.org, Kyoto, Nikkei, Japan Times, Benichi, NHK, fukuleaks.org, and simplyinfo.org, thenuclear-news.net, Wall Street Journal, Asahi.com, Reuters.com, Cape Times, Euractive.com, EuropeanNewsWeekly.wordpress.com, TaipeiTimes.com, DW.com, the soul-damaged cubicle drones who write for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, courtesy Erica Gray, and the big-hearted planet protectors and peaceful warriors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook which you are all invited to join, like, and share your posts there with your loved ones and with those people who love nukes and you just want to gripe them off. Thanks to energy healer Barbara Robbins, whose vibrational sub-audio emerging from catastrophe is running in the background of this show. A link to her work so you can run this on your own for free will be up on the website. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, Accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provider. And a reminder that we rely on your donations to help keep this show up and running. So please send a supporting donation, whatever you can. Any amount is greatly appreciated. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and look for that infamous big red donate button. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you to join the ICANN Nuclear Disarmament Thunderclap. And then once it shows up on your Twitter account, retweet it. Let's make all the noise we can. And once we've done that, we'll consider it our nuclear wake-up call. So all of you, do not go back to sleep. 
because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.